You're listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go, a podcast that'll change how you think and change your life. I'm Willie Horton and I'm a psychologist. I've been helping people change their lives since 1996. Broadcasting from the French Alps and delighted to have you along. Let's take this week's step in the right direction. When we explore what we do explore in this podcast, we are often limited by the normality of language. For example, the word expect, which is the word that I want to explore in this particular episode, means different things to different people. Let's take just a couple of examples, because I said a couple of times recently, there's no such thing as an insignificant moment. We never know the time nor the hour when something significant and possibly life-changing is going to happen us, happen for us. These things, synchronicities, as we have explored before, are things that are most likely to happen when you least expect it. And that's a phrase I've used a couple of times recently. On the other hand, it was Bartlett, Bartlett's research in 1932 that gave rise to a whole stream of research in the field of psychology and cognitive psychology and latterly neuroscience. His research said that you only perceive what you expect to perceive. Or indeed, to go a step further, you only, as a result of that, achieve what you expect to achieve. Now, if on the one hand, synchronicities happen when you least expect them to happen, and on the other hand, you only perceive what you expect to perceive and achieve what you expect to achieve, how can you achieve anything that is outside the norm of your expectation? In other words, won't the synchronicities pass you by? So I need to clarify a couple of things before I go any further in this episode. First of all, when I say that synchronicities are likely to happen when you least expect them. What I actually mean, word for word, is synchronicities are most likely to happen when you think they won't happen. So it's kind of a thinking mind or cerebral cortex activity, that kind of expectation. In other words, in other words, it's a thought, not the kind of expectation that Bartlett was talking about. When I say to you that you only perceive what you expect to perceive, and you only achieve what you expect to achieve, the word expectation there has a totally different meaning. It could be scientifically described as a subconscious expectation, but let me translate those sentences for you in the way I've just translated the sentence in relation to synchronicities. And just to repeat that, so you're fully aware of what I'm talking about, a synchronicity is most likely to happen when you think it's least likely to happen. So in other words, that's a thought. In the other case, I only perceive what I believe I will perceive, and I only achieve what I believe I will achieve. So in other words, subconscious expectation is actually synonymous with belief. A belief, a set of beliefs, what we believe about ourselves and how the world works. Now, I was asked a couple of months ago on one of our program owners Wednesday evening zooms what is the bridge between thought on the one hand and expectation on the other 
Now, on the basis of what I've just said in relation to subconscious expectation, I'm going to slightly recast that question for the purposes of our conversation today. What is the bridge between a thought and a belief? In other words, when people say to me, oh, I think I'm stupid, actually translated into psychological English, what they mean is, I believe I'm stupid. As somebody said to me many years ago, I was born stupid. That is how much he actually believed he was stupid. When I pointed out to him that nobody is born stupid, nobody is born anything other than uh, male or female. And I know that's probably actually politically incorrect at this point in time, but physically nobody is born with anything other their physical nature and some presets, like for example, face recognition is built into us, as is the will to and the technology to survive. But beyond that, we're basically close to a blank slate. We learn what we believe about how the world works and what we believe most fundamentally about ourselves. Between the period of three months before we are born, when we're fully aware of what is going on, and the end of our third year, in other words, our third birthday. This is when we learn all the fundamental beliefs that we have. This is when we learn the expectations to which Bartlett was referring. This is what neuroscience investigates when it investigates expectation. It investigates deeply held beliefs. Now, you might say to yourself, I know myself, I've lived with myself all of my adult life. There are things I believe about myself that are immutable, but that is not the case. You haven't lived with yourself all your adult life. You have wrestled with a squatter in your head, your conceptual self. You know what I'm talking about when we talk about the conceptual self. The conceptual self is if we use the language I was using right at the beginning of today's episode, it's a bundle of expectations about what you're good at, what you're not good at, how far you can go, and where is a bridge too far for you in anything and everything in your life, every aspect of your life. So you don't know yourself. And in that regard, most people think that self-awareness is becoming aware of your faults and failings and becoming aware of how you may have garnered and gathered those faults and failings over your formative years. An awful lot of people will think that self-awareness involves going back and raking over that stuff, that it's irrelevant to the here and now. The only thing we need to do to become aware is literally to become aware, aware of what is going on here and now, aware of what I am actually feeling. In other words, not my emotional feelings, what I'm actually feeling, using my five senses, what I'm seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling, and tasting. Aware of what is real, unclouded by the thought. Of course, the process of awareness brings with it an awareness of the noise in one's own head, an awareness of thought. And with that awareness comes an understanding that I'm not who I thought I was and that the accumulation of thoughts in my head that are making this noise in my head, that are literally fighting with me in my head, is simply not even a figment of my own imagination. It is simply the result of my not having trained myself to pay attention to the reality of what I'm seeing, feeling, 
hearing, smelling and tasting in the here and now. And that's obviously why meditation is a fundamental part of the journey of self-awareness and awareness in general, because it teaches you how to fully experience the reality of what one is seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling and tasting in the here and now. But I want to come back to the question that I was asked some time ago in relation to the bridge between thought and belief. In other words, let me put this another way. I ask everybody, and you'll be aware of this because you've heard me ask it of you before. In an ideal world, what kind of life do you want to have? In an ideal world, what kind of experiences would you like your life to be replete with? Ola. And people will start reflecting upon it. And, you know, that reflection will be poisoned by normal thinking. We've talked about that before and how people, when posed that question in the first place, will answer what they think they want based on what they think about themselves and what they think success and happiness might constitute for them, given their past experience of living with this squatter that I mentioned a few minutes ago. In other words, if you don't reflect on what you want, or if you don't go inwards, I suppose, having developed your self-awareness so that your gut instinct or intuition begins to inform you of the kind of life that you would really, really love to have, if you don't do that, the answer to the question about an ideal life is going to be clouded by thought. But let's park that. Say you've got over that and you are now considering what kind of life you would love to have. Let's pick a simple example. It's an example that you will be absolutely familiar with for the simple reason that it constituted the central plank of our story a few weeks ago when we talked about my friend who had lived in Dublin and through a series of synchronicities as a result of his developing awareness had set his mind to bobbing up and down on a yacht with his two sons. You'll recollect the story from three or four episodes ago. If you haven't listened to it, it's worth a listen. I think it's called The Story That Has Everything, or words to that effect, three or four episodes ago. Obviously, I asked him what a perfect moment would be for him. Now, we've talked about perfect moments before, and you will be aware that that is a phrase that I use to enable individuals encapsulate in a seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling and tasting way what they would be experiencing if all were well, in a moment where all is well. And you see, this is key to how not just we set our minds, but it is key to bridging the gap between thought and belief. So back to my friend's question a, a couple of months ago. What, where is this bridge between thought and expectation or thought and belief? In other words, when does a thought become a belief? And let me explore that a little bit further, because as I said a minute ago, let's assume you've got over this poisoning of the way in which we think about what happiness and success might look like for us based on what we think happiness and success looks like from a normal point of view or from the perspective of those who we would look at and regard as being potentially happy and successful. So you've got over all that nonsense. So you're now reflecting on something that gives rise to an answer like I'm bobbing up and down on a boat with my two sons and I have a can of beer in my hand and the beer is bubbling and exploding on my tongue. So that's the answer you come up with. 
that answer obviously involves a degree of reflection. It isn't just intuition for the simple reason that if it were just intuition, you mightn't be able to put it into the words that my friend used to write the word picture that constituted for him his perfect moment. So in other words, there's always an element of cerebral activity involved, always a, a, an element of thought. So in other words, if I have reflected on what would be a perfect moment for me and I have come up with that idea, they are now my thoughts on the kind of experience I want to have at a particular moment that I don't expect because of synchronicities that we mentioned a few minutes ago. They are my thoughts in relation to what I now want. And my friend's question on our online program owner's Zoom was, how do I take the leap from having come up with that to actually believing it? I'll repeat the question in the way he asked it because it goes straight to the heart of the key point that I want to make in this episode. Again, he asked, what is the bridge between a thought and an expectation? Or as I reframed it a few minutes ago, what is the bridge between a thought and a belief? Now you already know the answer to this because we have talked before about how we learned our beliefs about ourselves when we were young and impressionable. Things happened for us, things happened to us, events swirled around us and made us feel good about ourselves, bad about ourselves, and because of the way the brain is wired through evolution to ensure that we always keep ourselves alert and on our toes, we were more likely to pay attention to the things that were done to us, that were that made us feel bad about ourselves. You know as well as I do that in circumstances like that, when we were completely open, like a sponge soaking in everything that was going on around us, we took what psychology calls a psychological snapshot. In other words, if I go back to an example from another client a number of years ago that I mentioned a few months ago, I stand up at the age of just gone three, Christmas Eve in the farmhouse. The fire is raging in the fireplace and everybody is getting hotter and rosier as the family gathers around the fireplace. Some of that rosiness is as a result of the fire crackling in the fireplace. Some of it is as a result of a glass of wine or two or a little shot of whiskey or a couple of beers. And I stand up with my back to the fire in front of everybody to sing my party piece because my mother has bullied me into it. And just as my mouth opens to sing the first line of how much is that doggy in the window? A couple of my uncles start falling around the place laughing. It is an event that I feel deeply. It is an event of which I take a psychological snapshot. The consequences of that are lived with for the rest of my life as long as I believe that when I stand up to perform, people will laugh at me. That's how we take a psychological snapshot. And that is the bridge between thought and belief. A thought in that moment, these guys are laughing at me and I need to burst into tears and run out of the room. The belief comes as a result of two things. Number one, at three years of age or there or thereabouts, my mind is completely open. So I'm prone to taking psychological snapshots and I am prone to taking negative psychological snapshots, as we said a minute ago. 
The second factor is that I perceive that something has been done to me because even at that stage, I already have amassed a body of knowledge because I started learning it three months before I was born, that you don't get your way in the world. You need to fight your corner. You're not the center of the universe, as we've discussed before. That's something that dawns on people when they're about two years old. And I need to manipulate people. I need to negotiate, collaborate uh, and communicate with people. And I need to be on my guard all the time. So the number of factors involved, some of them evolutionary, actually, now that I think about it, all of them evolutionary because our brain was designed to ensure that even at around three years of age, we were still soaking things up like a sponge so that when something like that happened to us and it was a negative that was happening to us, we would take the psychological snapshot, bury it in our archive of psychological snapshots. And at that moment in time, an event and what I think about the event becomes a subconscious expectation it becomes a deeply held belief. So my friend asked the question, what is the bridge between a thought and a subconscious expectation or belief? The bridge is the psychological snapshot, pure and simple, done in the twinkling of an eye. Or at least it was done in the twinkling of an eye when we were young and impressionable something like that would make and leave a lasting impression upon us. And it would ruin our lives in later life until we do something about it. Now we know what we can do about it. First and foremost, we need to develop the ability to stop paying attention to stuff that isn't happening in the present moment. And I've, we've already talked about how to do that. We meditate, we meditate, we meditate. We keep meditating because practice makes perfect. Meditation enables us to experience the moment in the initial stages while we're meditating. And then as we progress as a result of the way in which meditation restructures the neural pathways in our brain, we begin to experience the moment when we're not meditating. In other words, we meditate to ensure that ultimately we can be wholly present and correct, seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling and tasting exactly what is going on when we're not meditating, when we're actually out and about in the cut and thrust of our daily lives. That is how we burn our bridges, if I can put it like that. That is how we break the link between a belief and the reality of the here and now. That is how we move ourselves from the stuff that holds us back into the reality of the here and now, where opportunity flows and synchronicity just happens because we are now aware. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, an opportunity only becomes a synchronicity when we have a sense of the direction in which we want our lives to go. If I go back to the story of my friend moving to the other side of the world, to New Zealand, the opportunity that presented itself in his office when he noticed on top of a pile of CVs on his desk, the CV of the lady in the bank in New Zealand, who was the incumbent in the job that he had just been offered. If he wasn't aware, first of all, he wouldn't have seen it. But if he didn't 
have an expectation, and in this case, I mean a subconscious expectation of the direction in which he wanted his life to go. His awareness at that moment in time wouldn't have added two and two and got the four to say, oh, this is a synchronicity. In other words, awareness isn't enough. I could be aware of the beauty of a tree. I can look out my window here and be aware of the beauty of the trees around me and the beauty of the mountains around me and the beauty of the big thundery like clouds in the blue sky. But that awareness isn't going to move me in any particular direction unless I have set my mind on the trajectory in which I want my life to go. Because even an awareness then of the beauty of the trees and the mountains and the sky, the awareness of that at that moment in time will enable me have aha moments, will enable things occur to me because I am immersed in the beauty of the moment. But in the cuss and thrust of our day, like going into the office and being aware of the CV on the top of the pile of CVs and then putting the two and two together and saying to oneself, this is a synchronicity. This is a signpost that is leading me in the direction that I know I want my life to go because I believe it. Then not only will I be aware of it, not only will I know it for what it is, I will act on it, and I will act on it without, I was going to say a second thought, I will act on it without a first thought, because now I'm in the realm of being and doing. I have left the illusionary realm of thinking, where I would have thought about deeply held beliefs about people laughing at me when I was three years old. I've left that realm behind. So let's come back to the key question in this week's podcast episode again. What is the bridge between thought and belief? When I was three years old, the bridge was the psychological snapshot, the example of which I gave you a few minutes ago. Now that I am 53 or 63 or whatever age you are, the bridge is still a psychological snapshot. It's as simple as that. I have a thought or, 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 or a series of reflections that say to me, yeah, bobbing up and down on the sea in my yacht with my two sons with a can of beer in my hand and a steak on the barbecue slung out over the side of the yacht as I look across the bay and I look at the way in which the sunlight has been splintered into triangles by the heave of the waves. When I put all that together, how do I get that from a story that I've told myself to a belief? The answer is, as I said, a psychological snapshot. How can I take a psychological snapshot as an adult when decades of psychology and two decades of neuroscience tells us that the part of my brain that takes psychological snapshots is turned off when I reach the age of around 13, the onset of puberty. How am I going to do that? I'm going to handwrite it. We've talked about that already because handwriting takes me back into the realm of paying an unusual amount of attention to what I am doing now. In other words, it breaks the link with my thinking mind on the one hand, but more importantly, it opens a door to my subconscious mind. It opens a door to the visual cortex in my brain when I handwrite what I'm looking at. 
because the visual cortex in my brain is activated as if I'm looking at it for real. Same with the auditory cortices when I handwrite what I am hearing, but most fundamentally and importantly, same with the hippocampus in the subcortical brain when I write about how I am feeling because that's the part of the brain that takes the psychological snapshot. And when I handwrite how I'm feeling in that perfect moment, the hippocampus is activated as if I'm actually experiencing that perfect moment. The bridge between thinking about the kind of life you'd love to have and believing it, believing it has happened because I've seen it in my mind's eye already. Not believing it will happen, believing it has happened and it just needs to fall into place through a series of synchronicities of which I will be aware as a result, first of all, of developing my awareness on the one hand and on the other hand of having set my trajectory by giving my subcortical brain the coordinates it needs to say, this is the kind of life I want to have by handwriting my perfect moment. That's how I make the leap or build the bridge from that bundle of thoughts to a deeply seated belief. Now, once I have that belief installed in my subconscious mind, I don't need to think about it anymore. It's a belief. Like, you know, my friend whose uncles laughed at him when he was three years old, it never occurred to him until we had a long conversation about it one evening that that was the bridge between him standing up in front of a group of people at a national sales conference and wanting to burst into tears and run away from the podium just as he was about to start making his presentation. Because he didn't think about that belief anymore. It was a deeply seated, embedded and held belief. So once you've written your perfect moment, same thing applies. You don't go around thinking about it anymore. You go around living in the here and now, moment to moment. It's important. It's vital that we set our minds in the direction that we want our lives to go. Not by planning, not by figuring out, because that's a thinking mind activity, the things I need to do to get there, but by ensuring that having set my mind, I turn up to my life in the here and now, so that when the synchronicities happen at the moments I think they are unlikely to happen, I'm ready, willing and able to notice them for what they are, embrace them for what they are and take right action effortlessly because I already believe that's the direction in which I'm going. Without that kind of direction, it's going to be damn difficult to get the kind of life that you want in or any aspect of it, you know, losing weight, getting fit, getting a new job, setting up a new business, a relationship, whatever. It's going to be damn difficult. God knows. And you have bitter experience of this because at one point or another along the journey of our lives, we've all had the same experience. It's damn hard to get what you want. It's impossible to get what you want when you don't know what you want. Now, of course, it's only ever damn hard to get what you want because you were trying. But if you're present and you know where you're going, the whole thing becomes absolutely and wonderfully effortless. It's called flow and it's the way in which we're supposed to lead our lives. It's the way in which you're supposed to be the screenwriter, producer, director and star in this movie that is called 
your life. You've been listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go. To get involved, join me in my Facebook group, strangely enough called To Succeed, Just Let Go. And for more information, visit www.willie-dash.com 